Let's turn to First John and uh, chapter four. And we'll read beginning with verse 7, primarily because we will be falling back on that background later on in the message. But our text for this morning is really 1 John 4 and verse 16. I'll begin reading from verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might be saved through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Then our text, so that was our text, it's verse 15 actually. I've put verse 16 in my notes, but it's verse 15. Whoever confesses, oh, I'm correct, sorry. So we have come to know and to believe, yes, the love that God has for us. God is love. There it is. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Well, there we have it. That's our regular expositions in the book of First John. And as we have said, it is all about the fact that we can know as believers that we have eternal life. And in knowing it, we can be individuals who want to share the good news with the rest of the world because it is indeed good news. We were destined to meet God on the judgment day and from there destined to be thrown into the flames of hell. But because God is love, because he's given his son, because he has saved us, that need no longer be our destination, and our destination now is heaven. That is good news, and we want the whole world to know about it. The last time we were looking at this, we were in verse 15, where 
the statement is made that if we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, then we can know assuredly that we are truly children of God. Then God abides in us and we abide in God. In other words, doctrinal correctness. Let me say that again. Doctrinal correctness with respect to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is essential to salvation. If you are asked basic questions concerning who Jesus is and how he saves us from sin and your answer is wrong, then you are not a Christian even if you have gone to church the whole of your life. That's what we saw last time. But today, we are moving on to the implication of all this. And the implication is simply that a God who has done what we are confessing he has done is surely a loving God. And John puts it strongly when he says, God is love. We shall see something of that in a moment. The fact that God loves us is something that is basic to the Christian faith. And yet, often when people are going through trials, they tend to begin to doubt that altogether. Especially when trials persist. When an illness persists, when lack of employment persists, when lack of a place in college or university persists, when parents cannot pay for your education and you are going into one month and the other month and you're going into a year and another year and you've been praying to God for finances and still Clearly, not going to happen. You begin not only to doubt that God loves you, you even begin to doubt that he exists. And we go through this often. And it's worse when a breadwinner actually dies. And life is upside down. Finances are not there. Relatives move in and grab property. You say to yourself, if God existed, how could he allow this? More so, you are telling me he loves me. How in the light of the present circumstances? Well, friends, the Bible says it again and again, doesn't it? The famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. And it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. So let's spend a bit of time to see how John himself opens up this subject for us 
as part of speaking concerning our assurance of salvation. Back to verse 16. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. The first lesson we're learning from that verse is simply this. That to be convinced of God's love, we must go to his highest act of love. And that is what God did in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Putting it another way, don't go to your circumstances. Don't. Don't go to that moment when your boyfriend came to you and said, Fiapwa. Because if you go to that moment, you will obviously doubt that God loves you. But go to the cross, and there you will find the highest act of love on the part of God. And this is where John was coming from. Our verse begins with a little phrase, so we have come to know. So, in other words, therefore, and that little phrase suggests that it is a conclusion of what we have just talked about. When we go to verse 14, this is what we hear. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the savior of the world. That's where we're coming from. We have seen, in other words, we've learned about this, and then we ourselves testify, we speak of this, we confess this reality, this truth that God has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Now, if we go a little further up, this is why I began reading from there, we begin to see that this sending has to do with the sacrifice of God's Son. Look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us, and here is the phrase, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we've already looked at this, but let me remind you that that phrase propitiation suggests a, a sacrifice that is brought to appease wrath. That's what a propitiation is. It is a sacrifice that is brought as a substitute so that the person who is angry is no longer angry with you. Another example I can give is uh, you coming and bashing into my car. Obviously, when I come out of my vehicle, uh, yeah, you will not see the best of me in that moment. We'll leave it there. You will not see the best of me. 
But while I'm expressing myself in that way, you, you, you give me your car. Not the one that has it into me, but the one that your son is driving and it is a white latest Mercedes-Benz. You see me smile and say, no, it's all right, it's all right. <laughs> These things happen in life. You know? Thank you very much. And uh, I jump into my new car and drive off. My wrath has been appeased, but you have sacrificed your car and driven off with an Isuzu that's sort of coughing all the way back to your home. Now, in this particular case, God sacrifices his son as a substitute. We are the sinners. We deserve to die because of our sins. We deserve to spend eternity in hell, burning forever, because we have sinned against almighty God. Well, what does he do? He sends his son. That's what this verse is telling us. And the sending of his son is not simply to visit, but to be that substitute, to be that sacrifice. And consequently, when Jesus is hung upon the cross, he is our sins, the guilt of our sins is transferred to him and God punishes him just as if he is the one who had committed our atrocities, our sins, just as if he is the guilty one. And so he goes on to say, notice that was in verse 14, we have seen and testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. Verse 15 went on to say, whoever confesses, that Jesus is the Son of God, abides in him and he in God. In other words, we sort of pause for a moment and say, who is he? Who is that sacrifice? It's not a creature. It's not a mere human being. It's God's own Son. And so when we process that reality, it makes us realize God must be a loving God. He must be. We shake our heads and we say, how can it be that God should give the best of heaven, his own son, for the worst on earth, sinners, rebels, how? It would be hard enough giving his own son for us if we're innocent. But he gives his own son for us. He surely loves us. So let me say it again. Keep a well-beaten path to Calvary. In other words, think a lot about the cross. Make it a deliberate policy to meditate on the cross. And the result of it is going to be a realization that whatever it is I am going through, 
God loves me. And that's the reason why before Jesus left, he enacted the Lord's Supper and said, do this, eat of this, drink of this, until I come back. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the cruel death that Jesus Christ underwent. When we break bread, that's what we are symbolizing, the suffering, the crushing of God's own son. And when we drink of the cup, that's what we're talking about, that he actually shed his blood for us. So keep thinking about Calvary. Keep meditating upon Calvary. Keep singing about Calvary. And you're going to realize more and more that the heart of God is a heart of love. But John goes a little further here and says that it's not simply that God is loving, but that God is love itself. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe as a result of this meditation the love that God has for us. Come to realize this. And then he says, God is love. Now he's already said it before in verse 8. In verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. But the way he said it previously, it's almost in passing. It's, it's in the midst of an argument. But here, he now makes it stand out in bold letters, in bold relief. If we speak in, 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 in computer language, he has made it bold, italics, the font, 1,000 or something. It's really standing out in front of you. Perhaps even changing the font color red so that you can't miss it. God is love. Now, it would have been enough for him to say God is loving because that's the whole point here of what he's making. But John really wants us to, to realize that this love of God is not an afterthought. It's not simply a commitment that God makes, which perhaps at some point he might even think of changing. When he says God is love, he's saying it is of the, the very essence of God. It's, it's his essential attribute. You cannot think of God without thinking of love. God cannot be God Unless he is love. It's, it's his essential nature. Just as we say, God is holy. It's his essential nature. Holiness is the way God is. It is the same with respect to his love. 
Now, that's not true of us. It's not. You may say, well, you know, I, I, I had a very loving mother. Especially those of us who are much older and our parents have since died, we, we tend to uh, exaggerate our thoughts about them, isn't it? Especially when you're putting on Facebook and you put your mother's photo there, they'll say, oh, she was loving. The most loving human being on the planet in human history, my mother. But you cannot say mom was love. You can't. You can't. Because there were those moments of change which you, your memory tries to forget. When her true colors came out, and you wished you could trade her in for another mother. There were those moments. Not so with God. God is not only loving, he is love itself. And that's the reason why he's able to love his enemies. The worst of his enemies. The very individuals who sacrifice his own son in terms of crucifying him with hatred in their hearts, fangs spitting venom. God still loves them. Paul argued this way in Romans and uh, chapter 5, comparing human love to God's love. Romans 5, verse 6 to verse 8. I won't have time to expound it, but at least let's read it. He says there, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died, notice, for the ungodly. Now, that immediately should provoke the thought how come, how can someone die for his enemies? How? The ungodly. And then he answers, for one who scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, and here it is. But God shows his love for us, and really the meaning there is his kind of love. For us, his unique kind of love for us, in that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, while we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. In fact, read verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? By the death of his son. Wow! 
our fists into the air. We were insulting him, calling him all kinds of names, plunging ourselves into the ways of sin. While all that was happening, God sacrifices his son for us. Now, that's the God kind of love. It's unique. And it is because God himself is love. He is. And friends, we make a grave mistake when we start judging God, his love, by human standards. However loving our parents may have been, they fall far short of God's love because theirs, it was an act of love, however many times it may have been. But God is love itself. It's his very, very nature. We might as well be thinking about the sun without thinking of heat and light. Then think about God without thinking of his love. Often human love is because of something that ties in with us already. A parent loves a child because that child is born of me. I have that attachment already. There is that sympathy and empathy. It's of me. A man loves a woman because, again, there is the attraction already. It's, it's me being attracted. And therefore, I love. But with respect to God, it's like the sun radiating light and radiating heat. Just going out and going out and going out. And doesn't matter the actual relationship that is there, even at that time, life is being oozed out of God in terms of love. It's his very nature. So let us stop judging God's love by our experience of human love. But finally, it's as this becomes a living reality, a burning reality in your soul that you begin to have experience, rather you begin to have assurance at an experiential level. When this becomes a burning reality in your soul, you find yourself experiencing assurance of salvation at an experiential level. And that's how John ends this verse back to 1 John 5, 4 and verse 16. Notice the abiding being mentioned so many times. 
So we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This business of abiding in God and God abiding in us, we've noticed it from verse 13 as something John continues to refer to. And all that John is doing in speaking about abiding in God and abiding in us is borrowing a phrase that Jesus Christ once used in, in John 15 when he spoke about himself being the vine and believers being the branches. It's an agricultural picture where you graft a branch into a main stem and as you graft it in, it's in the stem and then the life which is in the main stem begins to also go through that branch into the leaves and then that branch begins to bear fruit. The reason why it's bearing fruit is because it is in the stem and the life or the sap of the stem is in the branch. That's the picture Jesus uses. And John, remember, he wrote John's gospel as well, clutches onto this and uses it frequently. We saw it in uh, chapter 2. He already spoke about it so many times about abiding in God. And for those of you taking notes, it's uh, from verse 26 right down to verse 28. Over and over again, he speaks in terms of abiding in him, abiding in him, and so on. And again, in chapter 4, verse 13, He's been using this phrase. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. And again, verse 15 that we looked at last time, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ, rather is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. All he's saying there is that it is proof that you are saved. It is proof that you have been spiritually connected to Christ and that the life of Christ is flowing through you. It is proof that you are a true and genuine believer that there has been an act of God that has saved you and powerfully changed you and transformed you. That's all he is saying. But he uses this picture over and over again. But let's look at the first abiding. Because the first abiding refers to you as a believer dwelling upon this truth of God's love for you. Look at this. Verse 16. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love. In other words... Whoever dwells upon this love. Whoever is convinced about this love. Whoever 
has, been, has had his eyes open so that he actually almost sees with his naked eyes this love of God for him as a wretched, wicked, fallen creature. Whoever abides in this love. But when you look at the context, you begin to see that John is going beyond simply dwelling on this love intellectually. He is also speaking about this love now radiating out of your, this God kind of love radiating out of your heart as well and pouring upon others. Look at verse 7 downwards, which we read, but now we can read it afresh and you will see. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. There we are. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So it's not simply me dwelling upon the love of God and thinking about Calvary and my heart is warmed, but it's also when I now get out there and I am meeting individuals who's, who, who rub me the wrong way. And they still claim to be members of my church. And I am going out of my way to love them. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because there it is. God is love. Again, notice anyone who does not love. Then verse 9 down to verse um, uh, 10 tells us about this love of God sending the Son to die to be a propitiation and so on. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Have you noticed that? So it's not just meditating on the love of God for me, but in the process of judging, I'm asking myself, and how am I loving others? The two go together. The two go together. And then he says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, here it is. God abides in us. If we love, God abides in us. So when he is saying in verse 16 that God is love and whoever abides in love, he has both together. On one hand, I am gazing upon Calvary and I am overwhelmed. How can God love a sinner such as I? How? He must be loved. That's the only explanation. And then I get out there and his spirit Whose spirit? The spirit of God. Which God? The God who is love. Where is he? He's in my heart. What is he doing? His nature. What is his nature? He loves. 
So what he's doing? He is loving through me. That's what he's doing. And so I am in the context of love. I am enveloped in love. I'm, I'm, I'm receiving these rays from the sun which are warming me on the inside. And then I step out there and that same warmth is touching the lives of many. We come to the last part. The two final abides. What happens there? God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. He's saying when this reality is true of you, what is it showing? It is showing that your life is now connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, the main stem. It is also showing that the life of God is flowing through you. That's what it is showing. In other words, that's how you know that you are a Christian. It is on the basis of love. The love of God shown to you as a wayward sinner. The love of God you are showing others. Especially those who sin against you. So John is still dealing with the subject of assurance of salvation. That the way you know that you are saved is not by some kind of spiritual thermometer that you put somewhere when you are hidden alone and you sort of, after a few minutes, pull it out and, ah, uh, no, put it back in. Maybe I didn't put it there long enough. That, that's, that's, you know, that's not the way you do it. The way you know that you are a Christian it's quite simple, and it's this. Take a piece of paper and write down on that piece of paper the three individuals you don't get along with. Write them down. And then ask yourself the question, what am I doing with them? When did I last pray for them? Genuinely, before God, saying, Lord, bless but anyway, bless. <laughs> when did I last hear that there was a need they had and I went there? When? When? When did I last deliberately greet them? Hi, how are you? And they almost fall out of their socks. And you go on to say, yeah, so how, how are the children? How's your wife? How's work? And if you're farmers, how are your cows? <laughs> Genuinely. That's what God is doing. And you hear that they're in financial need, put some money in an envelope, out. But you take it there and say, here. 
when those things are beginning to happen, you know, this can't be me. I know myself too well. This can't be me. This must be God in me. That's what he's talking about. And friends, here's my concluding remark. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, you're saying to yourself, quit, forget it, forget it. Or simple, you're not a Christian. You are not a Christian. Yes, I know you've been going to church all your life. I know you may have been baptized. I know you may be a member of this church. But you are not a Christian in the biblical sense of the word. Now, you may argue with me if you want, but you wait for the judgment day. Because God will simply show this to you. That's all he will do. He will say, it was in my word. It was written in black and white. And your life, as it is being reviewed, is clearly showing you were unconverted because what you were doing is not what I do. And if I'm your father, you ought to be like me. Bottom line. So I'm saying, continue arguing. But if you love yourself, here's my plea. Go to Jesus today and say to him, I cannot do what you've done. Clearly, I'm not saved. Please save me today. Change my stony heart today. Fill me with your spirit today. So that that love that I see on Calvary, I may also see it flowing out of me into the lives of my enemies. If you come to him genuinely, owning your spiritual bankruptcy, he will save you. He really.